Dotnet Rocks, episode 1028, with guest Phil Hack. Recorded Friday, August 22nd, 2014. And there it is, and here we are, and that's the way it was. Mr. Campbell, how are you? I am well, sir. How are you? Great. I'm Doing good. the thing with the thing? Doing that thing with the thing. That's nice. Kickstarter ended yesterday. Yep. I'm happy. Everything is good. Now I got to start making the stuff. I've oh, actually got some you really have good... to make music. I know. It's oh, such that's a, a shame. shame, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Yeah. Yeah, I'm thinking this is a second career now. All these uh all these people are very interested. Well, you know, unless it crashes and burns and everybody hates it, then then I'm gonna go back to doing what I do before. <laughs> Don't quit your day job. <laughs> yeah. uh, we'll see what happens. It's hard to know. Hard to know. Could but I do way. have I do have some good ideas. I've gotten great feedback from people too. So and the feedback loop is gonna continue. Anyway, I got something cool today for Better Know Framework. Hit me. All right, buddy, what do you got? We have talked about this on the show before. I bet. It's Trello. Trello? I love Trello. Are you Tre- using Trello? I am. And I got my wife using Trello Uh-oh. for our household projects. Trello is an online Kanban board, basically. And it's great because it's collaborative. You know, uh, it's all in the browser. However, it's using that real-time updating stuff. Probably Signal R, I don't know. But uh, so that, you know, as people make changes, everybody who's looking at the board can see it immediately. And uh, yeah, you create boards and um, the boards are are sort of uh, like projects. And those boards contain lists, which are like task lists. And those lists contain cards that correspond to tasks. And uh, you can drag cards from one list to another. For instance, mirroring the flow of a feature from an idea to an implementation. But it's totally open-ended. And there's an API. So if you go to https colon trello.com slash docs, the, the API is documented there. You know, so you can get notifications in other places and so that you can write Trello things into your apps as nice. well. But have you heard of Zapier? Tell me about Zapier. Zapier allows you to integrate Trello and GitHub together. No kidding. Yeah. You you can have a check-in on in GitHub tie in GitHub tied to a Trello card or have a Trello card to create a GitHub issue. Wow. It's just, you know, mashups, dude. I love it. Well, and the whole the, my only complaint with Trello ever cuz we use it in a humanitarian toolbox extensively yeah. is unless you go there, you forget about it. Yeah, that's right. Right? And so having it more integrated with the other places you go, more tied to your email, more tied to your calendar, more tied to your source repositories, just helps it be part of the overall workflow. That's right. So I'm very keen on the integration part. You're right. Unless you have the board open, you're sort of forgetting about it. And yep. uh, yeah, I, I'm totally down with Zapier. Absolutely. That looks great. Exciting stuff. Very so. cool. And easy. Right? Oh, breeze. And priced accordingly. You know, there are retail versions when you want the fancier features, but for the little stuff you're doing, free. All right, man. There you go. Know it, learn it, love it. Who's talking to us, Richard? Grabbed a comment off a show 1006. That's the one we did with Mr. Eisenberg. Yes. We talked about the changes in Durandal and his whole relationship with Google and all that good stuff. Yeah. And this comment comes from Tola Chuan, who uh, Rob actually responded to. Let me read this to you. Uh, I believe that most C-sharp developers are still waiting for a, a TypeScript implementation of the Angular framework. Mm. I don't think that day will come anytime soon. Even if it will, I would recommend that you all get familiar with JavaScript, CSS, and HTML, because there are lots of great tools that are happening in the web world. Mm-hmm. If you depend on TypeScript to pave your way in this space, you will have to pay the catch-up game forever. Which is, you know, okay. <sighs> TypeScript is about making more reliable JavaScript in my mind. Just, you know, because you th- if you think in this statically typed realm, because you've lived in the C-sharp world, you know, this gives you sort of the best of both. Well, that's what you end up with, but it also helps you when you're developing, too, so that you don't have crazy errors. Based, that's right. Know. Just make it code a little easier to handle. Yeah. Rob responded to Tola. He said, interestingly, a lot of members of the Angular team really like TypeScript. However, the chances of Angular actually being implemented in TypeScript are pretty much zero. 
Zero. But that being said, I've talked with the TypeScript PM about what we were doing with Trace Year and shared some ideas with them about features we'd love to see in the language. We've also had some internal discussions on the Angular team about whether or not we might be able to produce d.ts files for TypeScript. Hmm. To which Tola responded, are you kidding me? A TypeScript definition file for Angular? That would be awesome. <laughs> because open source, dude. That's right. You know? Like, they just, I love that whole interaction of just, yeah, we can do all of this. We can find solutions to the whole thing. So, uh, Tola, thanks so much for your comment. Uh, it's all exciting times here the, in, the, in this community with all these cool things being built. I think a .NET Rocks mug would make it even funner. So a .NET Rocks mug is on its way to you. And if you'd like one, just write a comment on the website at .NET Rocks.com or via any of our mobile apps. We've got them for Windows 8, Windows Phone 7 and 8, iOS and Android. And that brings us to Phil Hack. Phil works at GitHub, finding ways to make it better for .NET and Windows developers everywhere. Prior to GitHub, of course, he was a senior program manager at Microsoft, responsible for shipping ASP.NET MVC, NuGet, and other projects. These projects were released under open source licenses and helped serve as examples of the open source model for shipping software to other teams at Microsoft. Phil is a co-author of the popular professional ASP.NET MVC series and regularly speaks at conferences around the world. He also has made several appearances on technology podcasts such as .NET Rocks. .NET Rocks? Who is that? Never heard of it. You might have heard of that. Hansel Minutes, Herding Code, and the official jQuery podcast. Welcome back, Phil. It's always good to talk to you, sir. Good to talk to you, too. Uh, You know, we shouldn't let that go uh, on, you, we shouldn't let you get out of here without a little bit of praise, because you are sort of <laughs> responsible for open sourcing Microsoft, and you know you're you were right there in the middle of that, and may I say, possibly even leading the charge there. But that turns out to have been a really really good idea, and our you know if you go back and listen to the history of .NET Rocks, uh, attitudes about open source have completely changed in this community, you know, since the earliest days, since 2002, 2003, in even not just at Microsoft, but among our listeners and me as well, open source was sort of viewed as, you know, this, the, this sort of socialistic evil way to, you know, uh, to circumvent paying for things, you know, in the Microsoft thing. And then, and then the funny thing was, Microsoft came out and said, you know, we're not really anti-open source. We're anti-GPL. You know, they didn't like that particular license. And so, you know, their their own forms of open source licensing came around. And it turns out it, it, open sourcing is a, a really good idea for everyone's sake. So thank you, Phil, for helping <laughs> turn that screw and, and change people's attitudes toward open source in this community. Oh. Thanks a lot. Now, it, I I was certainly involved, but there were a lot of other people that deserve a lot of credit for that. And it, back in those days, you know, people like uh, Glenn Block, Rob Menching, Hanselman. Um, so it wasn't just me, but yeah, uh, it it was really exciting to be involved in all that. Yep, I think it's got to be exciting to see it come true. Well, yeah, I mean, we made a lot of progress uh, in the time I was there, but since then, it's just gone, uh, you know, bananas. <laughs> Yeah, like I was just looking at the, uh, you know, how the ASP.NET team is now actively doing from the get-go. They're doing um, all of their development in GitHub, and that's really exciting. Uh, TypeScript has moved over to GitHub, uh, so we're seeing a lot of Microsoft development happening in the open with contributions in GitHub, and uh, it's, yeah, it's really great to see that change. I was talking with Steve Smith, and this wasn't on the last show we did, but I was actually at his house when we were talking about open source projects. And, you know, if your business is services, if you're in a service business where you're a development shop or you're, you know, you have some, uh, you, you know, you're delivering services, then an open source project can be wonderful for you. And not just in terms of what you give to the community, but establishing your credibility. You know, and, you know, the, when somebody comes to hire you, you can look and say, oh, yeah, you know that tool that you're using? Yeah, I wrote that. You know, that's mine. That's my project. Or that's our project. But if you're, you know, if you're in the, maybe if you're in the software business and you're, um, you know, trying to sell the software that you're open sourcing, 
a little bit different. You know, you have to really think about licensing and what it is that you're going to open source versus what it is that you're going to charge for. And, you know, that Microsoft is in both camps, aren't they? They're in the services business and they're also in the software business. So I imagine that trying to make, you know, trying to dance that dance uh, has always been a challenge. Yeah, it's a it's a difficult balance. I think for the most part, though, when you look at most businesses that use software, software is a means to the to some other end or goal that they're trying to do, and the actual so- a lot of the actual software they use and write isn't anything that they make their money off of. Right? It's not their right. core business. So getting those things using open source components for that makes a lot of sense because, uh, you know you have this whole profession of software developers where we're all contributing to these uh, various libraries and any improvement that any of us make, even, you know, when you're working with a, a competitor, if you make, you both make improvements to a common library that you share with everybody, then everybody benefits. Yeah. So, yeah, what is Microsoft getting from being open source? Because they they're still making the same products they were over making. How is this changing things? Well, I think a, a big change is that uh, a lot of their business model is moving towards uh, hosted services like Azure. Um, Just recently, Scott Guthrie blogged about, you know, document databases of being available. I mean, the Azure team is making all kinds of uh, amazing components for developers to use. They just added a search index service. Mm -hmm. And you can imagine that uh, when they're hosting that thing, it's a lot easier for them to rely on open source components because they're not... The software, what they're selling is the service, the access, the thing that's really hard for you to do on your own. And the software, you know, they benefit from not having to rewrite all this software. And they benefit from the rich ecosystems that abound around this software. And they benefit from developers using software that's known and good instead of writing their own. Absolutely. Yeah, and not only that, but like there's that there's also the sort of the PR aspect, the community aspect. Um, when we were working on ASP.NET MVC three, uh, we, at the time we had our own Microsoft AJAX li- uh, library, which many people know uh, by its former codename Atlas. And we got to the point where we're like, well, jQuery has won for the most part in in this space, and jQuery is beloved. It's on something like, uh, I don't know, 70 to 90% of all websites now, by now. Mm-hmm. And uh, there was that point where we're like, well, it makes no sense for us to continue to build our own library when all everyone's using jQuery, all the component authors are building on top of jQuery. And if we adopt jQuery, then all of our customers get all the benefits of the jQuery uh, ecosystem. And, you know, we get a little goodwill because, you know, people love jQuery. So... In that way, it was a kind of a no-brainer. Yeah, and that's that's the thing is if you're if you are a services business, it makes complete sense to do. It. You, you're crazy if you're not doing open source because for the for all of those reasons, and you know, and the community reason isn't just a little benefit. You know, for to use jQuery, it's the difference between people using your stuff and not using your stuff. Oh yeah, yeah. In, in many respects, yes. And the jQuery license is MIT, which is basically all you need is attribution. Like it's a minimal set of restrictions. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's what's called a permissive license. So jQuery is actually dual license. So you can choose GPL or MIT. And I'll give you one guess which one Microsoft chose. I'm thinking MIT. <laughs> yeah. Although there's a bunch of different GPL licenses. Like they wait we. Phil, obviously, one of the reasons we're doing this is you and I were just involved in a Microsoft Virtual Academy video series on open source. And Cliff Allen sort of stole that show. And he's a lawyer, you know, involved with open source licenses. And he talked about uh, Microsoft actually using an LGPL license as part of project as part of Studio. I can't remember the exact module that it was used for, but it's like just because it's GPL doesn't mean it's automatically dead. Oh, I can tell you. Well, so here's the funny thing, right? So as you guys know and probably have heard, Microsoft is uh, adopting Git in a big way. Um, mm-hmm. You know, it, they've integrated into TFS and into Visual Studio. Well, Git is GPL licensed. 
so the question is, well, how are they gonna? How are they doing this, right? Like I thought, Microsoft hates GPL, and I wouldn't say they hate GPL. I think they're just fearful of it, right? Like if you include a GPL licensed, um, pro, if you bind to a GPL licensed uh, code, then it sort of makes the whole thing have to be open source. However, what they've done is that they are taking a dependency on something called libgit2, and uh, libgit2sharp. So libgit2 is a C library that uh, effectively re-implements uh, the features of Git in an L or limited LGPL license. And the way LGPL works is you're allowed to uh, bind to that library without making your own code open source. But if you make any uh, changes to the library itself, then you have to you know, make those patches available. And so it's, it's kind of a neat license. So they're depending on libgit2, and if you need to do things that libgit2 doesn't yet support, uh, in Visual Studio, it just says, "Oh, go and you know, click here to go find git.exe." <laughs> right. But you know, now you've drawn an interesting line. The original GPL licenses was not only if you use my software, uh, if you make any changes to my software, you have to contribute it back. But if you make, if you include my your my software in your software your software is automatically open source too it's like it's viral well so it to, to be clear like gpl v2 and even v3 it was if if you distribute your software you have to make those changes available like you didn't have to go through the whole process of contributing back but but anyone who asked for the source code should be able to get it uh, it's a subtle distinction but but effectively yeah there was a sense of uh viral virality, if you will, that um, you had to make your code open if you distribute it. But then, you know, if you were hosting a service, you didn't, that wasn't considered distribution of the software, right? right. You wouldn't distribute the code. So then you didn't have to uh, release it, which is what led to sort of like the the, the TiVo clauses in the Afero or A-F-F-E-R-O, probably not pronouncing it right. But the, like there's AGPL and that one is a little more strict about if you're changing the code in any way, you have to make your code changes available, even if you're not distributing the software. If you're like hosting a service that uses the software, you have to do that. Right. Yeah, this is interesting games with licenses. And if I remember correctly, in the original GPL, they were talking about linking the software because the license is so old that it was st it's from an era where if you were using the library, you were embedding it into your code. You were compiling with it. They didn't didn't take into account things like external API calls or even the relationship with JavaScript, where it's not really linked. Like, where's the linking step there? Right, right. Like, I, th I think it's really interesting to think that these licenses are dated too. You know, even the LGPL license is from two thousand seven. And the way we work with software keeps evolving. Yeah, yeah. Like you, you kind of wonder, like, what, what does it mean to uh, make a web request to a piece of software? Am right. I linking with it? You know, Is that in, actually you linked? Know, in quotes? And if it's not linked, then what if I'm not making an HTTP call? What if it's a named piped call? And if, it's, if that's okay, then how about we just, you know, make a reference in memory? And then right. now, or, what is linking or, anymore anyway? It's a slippery slope. process.start, right? Like if you're shelling to it. <laughs> yeah. No, they're, they're, this is why lawyers are well paid and kept very busy. There, there will never be an end of work to what they do. <laughs> well, I mean, and the problem is you need someone technical enough to understand the difference. Right? Yeah, absolutely. And, and, and then hopefully connected enough with the industry to recognize, you know, w where a license would be poison. Like, hey, mm -hmm. if making a if making an external HTTP call to a service effectively means I have to obey their license, buh bye service. Yeah, exactly. This is why it's sometimes scary when you see um, certain politicians talking about the things like net neutrality or or patent law as it refers to software. Yeah. And the first words out of their mouth makes makes you abundantly clear that they have no idea what they're talking about, but they're the ones who are going to legislate on this. <laughs> That's right. I'm not a technical person. Then you should stop talking. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> or you should listen to the technical people that you work with. <laughs> and guys, this is a good time to talk about coder camps. Coder Camps is changing the way people learn .NET and JavaScript. If you've been learning .NET on your own, these guys can get you the skills that you need to get hired in just nine weeks. 
They've been around for over a year now, and the results are amazing. Everyone who's graduated has been hired within 90 days, and now they've made it even better by letting students attend camp online. Check them out at CoderCamps.com. Phil, are people making up their own licenses when the the current array of licenses that are available out there just don't fit? And and are there more than, you know, how many are there, actually? <laughs> There's a huge number of licenses. And in fact, uh, in my opinion, I think that's almost that's a bit of a problem, right? Because there's a sense of how do you mix and match software with different licenses, right? And so there's this concept of compatibility, and it's really hard to know that if people are making up their own licenses. And so there's a group that was formed called the OSI or Open Source Initiative, and they basically came and said, "Look, you know, we're going to certify a certain set of licenses and say, hey, these licenses are." open source by a definition called the open source definition. And so, you know, there's certain things in that definition, like the license cannot restrict people. Like you can't say, oh, if you're from the state of Ohio, you're not allowed to use the software. That would not be an open source license. Um, hmm. Nothing against Ohio. Yeah, I was just thinking. <laughs> yeah. So okay. uh, I actually worked on a site called chooseolicense.com that um, what we wanted to do is try to really, you know, kind of, gently uh, push people to choose one of three licenses because you know we felt that most people really don't know what license to choose and if you don't have a lawyer to advise you which you know is the ideal situation then um, there's three general licenses that most or a lot of projects that we see on github choose that are relatively um, I don't want to say safe because I'm not a lawyer and I, I don't want to any to be you know construed as giving legal advice but the you know these are generally good choices right and they're apache mit and gpl and you know every license has its flaws but i think those are three very common very uh good licenses to choose from and there's sort of a there's sort of an arc here right of more permissive versus more restrictive like gpl falls a little more on the restrictive side of what they call copy left which amuses me to no end yeah yeah it's a uh, well, it, it's restrictive, but it's also very what, what they would say freedom oriented, right? Like it means that you know that uh, any changes to your code that anyone does, you're going to be able to; those are going to be contributed back. You know, there's right. something, you know, th there is something kind of cool about that as well. But th but then the challenge is if you're trying to use it in a um, let's say a distributed product, then you know that you want to keep proprietary. Then you're, it's not as permissive. Um, as like MIT, which allows you to pretty much do whatever, do whatever you want. And the biggest thing when it comes to licensing is once you set it and you get contributions, it's really hard to change it. Yeah, you can change it. Um, after, you, you can always change it if you're the copyright holder. So if you tell everyone who commits to give you uh, to sign the copyright to it, you can change it, but you can't change it retroactively. Right. So, like at the point that you change it, anyone who has a copy of the code, you know, can continue to fork that version under the old license, but all new changes would be under the new license. But um, it has happened that uh, projects have changed their license. It's just um, if you don't have copyright assignment, then you need. Uh, permission of everyone who's ever contributed anything to your project and that can be really tricky to track down or you strip their code out of the system yes that's the that's uh certainly an, the other option so and and we bring up two sort of key points then there's there's the open source license itself what people can do with your code and then there's the contributors licensing agreement right a lot yeah and a lot of projects don't have cla so then there's sort of this implicit cla of um, you know, by U.S. copyright law, if you create a work, you, you're the owner of that work. Right. So people who contribute patches to an open source project actually own those patches unless, you know, they've explicitly or, you know, um, yeah, unless they somehow assigned it over. And sometimes it can be as simple as, you know, in an email saying, yeah, yeah, you can have this. So, so do you use CLA Hub? Uh, I personally don't, but I've heard of it. Well, it's it's supposed to be like the contributor license agreement for GitHub. Yeah, it integrates nicely into GitHub so that um, uh, people who have projects hosted on GitHub can use it. It's not officially uh, associated with us. It's oh, some okay, third so. party. It's a third party site. Yeah, but they use the GitHub API to do it. And just you know, they, that's the whole thing. Is all right. I should get a contributor's license agreement. Where do I get one? Right, right. 
Yeah, so if you if you want to um, force people to use, sign a CLA or contribute a license agreement to your project, you can check out CLA Hub. It integrates right into GitHub, and then uh, it's probably one good way to do that. But it's an, I mean, it's an interesting truth that if you don't have one, everybody contributes owns the rights to what they contributed. Yeah, that's, that's the default. Mm-hmm. And if you want to make that different, which you can do, you just have to have an agreement. Yeah. And oddly enough, it's pretty hard to get people to sign an agreement after the fact. <laughs> well, yeah, sometimes it's hard to just find them in general, right? Sure. Well, I, I, Scott Hunter told a story of when um, Signal R was going to be pulled into the uh, into studio, they actually had to get a hold of everybody that ever contributed to Signal R to straighten that out. And they ended up being able to get a hold of everybody. But, it, you know, that's not a trivial thing to do. Right. Yeah. Like that project was sort of just a side project that they were running kind of for, you know, for their own benefit, uh, right. Damien and, and David Fowler. And then it was like, hey, let's make this a real thing. And I'm by Microsoft. And, and they had to go through all that whole process. I'm astonished that they did it. And we're all better off. Like it was a great outcome. But boy, talk about daunting. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I imagine. Uh, you know, these guys have some fun things to do. And it's just an interesting idea that software can evolve like this. That open source is not only, uh, it's not a one-way trip. It doesn't only stay out open source. It can be moved around. Yeah. Yeah, there's a lot of good stuff coming out from Microsoft. And, uh, you know, not necessarily, not specifically open source, but s- somewhat related is um, I was uh, hearing about how, I think there's a blog post or a video about how the, uh, the .NET team and the, the CLR team are working at distributing the .NET framework as NuGet packages. And this is something that, you know, like we've been talking about for a very long time. When, you know, even when I was there, it was when the, the, the genesis of this idea kind of came out. But it sounds like they're making really good progress. The idea that you could uh, build your app against whatever version, you know, a, a specific version of the .NET framework and pull in pieces of the framework using NuGet is really, really exciting to me. Yeah, and it speaks to the continued evolution of the CLR. Like, we we want to know where it's going to go, and and I can see that 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 old code, like they pretty much have to rewrite it. A lot of that old code, who knows who owns it, and and where that license state actually is. It's got to be really challenging to get that to open source. Yeah, so I think initially, like, it doesn't need to be open source to be hosted in NuGet. But uh, I imagine that down the road, that's something that they want to take it to. So we got an email a while ago from Steve Barnett, who Mm. provided a link to a YouTube video, uh, almost like a conspiracy theory video that Microsoft should open source VB6. Remember VB6? Yeah, I've heard of that. Like back in the 90s? Yeah, it is very conspiracy theory-ish. You know, it was the most popular language Microsoft ever did ever. They pulled the plug on support, and uh, there's there's been no response from Microsoft as to whether they're going to bring it back. But, you know, Phil, to your point, this whole conversation here, really, you've got to get a hold of everybody who owns anything related to the code around Visual Basic to get them to agree to open source it. Yeah. I mean, I I would have expected that Microsoft, uh, having built that, would own the the source code for it. So that uh, who else might be contributing to it? Well, I think back to it was Alan Cooper, you mm-hmm. know, Thunderforms, all that original stuff. I don't know how much of that was still in the code base, but you know, the the ownership path is not clear or simple there. Maybe. Oh yeah. Yeah, yeah, it I mean, could be. I mean, it could have all been a work for hire, but uh, there, I, I have my own ideas as to why they didn't do that and why they wouldn't, because simply they, they they lose control over code. You know, the one thing about VB6 is that it's sort of a, a nice wrapper around C++ native code. You know what I mean? And so they're, they're right, they really want people writing managed code. I yeah, I don't even think it's that, that simple. It's going to tie directly to Windows, so you're going to bump into Windows patents. Yeah. And some of that could be open source or not. But you know, the bigger thing here is you don't just open source it to dump it. It's about making contributions to it. Like, what would you add to VB6? Mm. I mean, yeah. Phil, 
support, jump in on this. Like, like when you want to take an existing project, and put it into open source, is it, you've got to put people on it. So the, the, I mean, there's a lot of different models for this, right? Uh, if there's people clamoring for it and they want to take ownership of it, then uh, th- it's fine to do that. Um, in fact, uh, the ASP.NET team did this with, uh, I, I think the, it was called the sort of the, the Azure Web Dashboard or something like that. And uh, they're like, you know, we're this is a this is I, I can't remember the exact name, but they're like, this is a dead. End. We're gonna just o- open source this, and then um, we're gonna have this guy in the community take it over. Well, that thing became AppVayer. And, and I don't know if you guys have tried AppVayer out, but it is a great uh, CI system for .NET, de- well, f- for any kind, but for .NET developers especially. It integrates really nicely into GitHub. And that originally was built off an open source project that Microsoft effectively abandoned to the community. Now, I think that's a good approach to do it. I don't, it's not, for something as big as VB6, to just throw it over the wall is you know perhaps uh, not so fair to the community if you can find people to do it, but at the same time there's also just sort of this historical uh, you know it's almost like a historical monument right mm, like yeah. the Prince of Persia code is on GitHub they're not accepting contributions I guarantee <laughs> you that because that code's dead but for like people who are like into that sort of thing who grew up playing Prince of Persia. It's kind of exciting to be able to go look at that and see what kind of crazy memory hacks they had to do to make that thing work. <laughs> hey, Richard. Yeah, buddy. You know what time it is? Uh, must be that happy time again. You know it. It's time to round up everyone who's ever won the .NET Rocks fan club giveaway and get them to sign an agreement that we won't be held responsible for not making them laugh. <laughs> <laughs> <coughs> now, there's a contributor's license agreement. Yeah, there's a nightmare waiting to happen. <laughs> yeah. The joke you're about to hear may or may not be funny. That's right. And I will not be responsible for your (laughs) non-laughter. Anyway, it's actually time to give away a D-Experience subscription to one lucky member of the .NET Rocks fan club. But first, let's talk about DevExpress Universal. Become a UI superhero with DevExpress UI controls and libraries and deliver elegant .NET solutions that address customer needs today and leverage your existing knowledge to build next-generation touch-enabled solutions for tomorrow. Whether it's an Office-inspired application or a data-centric analytics dashboard, DevExpress Universal ships with everything you'll need to build your best without limits or compromise. Learn more and download your free 30-day trial at devexpress.com slash superhero. All right, buddy. Who's our winner? Today's winner, Richard, is Steve Colshaw. Congratulations, Steve. Woohoo! And uh, Steve just won the D Experience subscription, a big box of awesome from Developer Express. Hey, if you don't know what we're doing here, go to .netrocks.com, click on the big Get Free Stuff button, answer a few questions, and join the .NET Rocks fan club. We have thousands of members all over the world. In every show, we give away great stuff from our sponsors. And every December, we give away $5,000 worth of good technology handpicked by one lucky member of the .NET Rocks fan club, picked at random. Phil, if you had $5,000 to spend on technology today, what would you buy? Oh, such a good question. I'd probably get an Xbox One. There's 400 bucks, 500 bucks. if you get it with the Kinect. Uh oh yeah absolutely. Let's see <laughs> what do I got left and then uh an iPad Air, right? A um, you know I don't I have I have a lot of what I need. <laughs> like, <laughs> I probably get a Surface Pro just to try it out. There you go, Pro three fully loaded, twelve fifteen hundred. So you're twenty five hundred with the three devices now. Yeah, Some IoT Mac- devices maybe. You're, you're halfway. Um. Wow, man, what's what's cool these days? Like um, some Internet of Things devices, maybe. Oh yeah, yeah. Oh, you know, I I got a Lockatron recently. That's kind of cool. Lock- what's a Lockatron? I wasn't going to tell anyone because now they're going to try to hack my door. But oh, because <laughs> uh, I I got a 4K monitor. I mean, I would probably get my own 4K monitor. I really like those. Wow. So yeah. Lockatron is a uh, phone. Lock, unlockable lock for your door yes yeah what's really cool about it is that you can give access to other people and then revoke access nice. so if you're doing the whole airbnb thing or or like me you know my family my parents just moved in from alaska and so i got we got them uh android phones and 
they have Lockatron for that. So now I can instead of giving giving them a key that they might lose, I can just give them the app and and then if they lose their phone, I can just revoke it so that the you know it doesn't open the door. It's pretty cool. Nice. So just a phone driven locking tool, so you could use your phone to unlock and relock the door. Yeah. And it has an API and you can hack it. So like you could do things like uh theoretically you could create like knock patterns that would open your door. Fancy. Wow. Like knock, 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 knock. <laughs> and then your door opens. <laughs> Click. <laughs> I wouldn't use that pattern because that's like what everyone does, but Yeah. Or facial recognition or uh, it doesn't have a camera, so it's on the inside of your door. But you could uh, connect a camera and oh yeah, PC. yeah, yep. Oh man, you're giving me some ideas. Yeah, so okay, then I need some cameras. <laughs> <laughs> so you many need toys. Open CV to do the facial recognition, or you could use the Connect. Yeah, yeah. Like, are you guys giving me five thousand? Now I'll, I'll tell you what I do with it. <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's right. That's what this whole thing's about. Amazing. We're not actually going to give it to you, but you know, I'll give it to you. Monopoly money. Nice. <laughs> okay. If you can spend that purple chicken somewhere, good luck. <laughs> okay. We should get back on the course. I think I have some questions about GitHub. Oh, let's do it. Cause that's where you work now. That is where I work. GitHub for windows. I hear you're using it now. Well, yeah, I've been using it for a while. Um, I came across uh, the need to do something that apparently um, people do need to do, but they're not quite sure how. We had a little conversation before we started recording, and so I just want to bring it up. So let's say that you have, um, you've maybe, I don't know, three days ago, checked in some code that had something that was then removed in a subsequent, you know, build, subsequent check-in, um, or subsequent update. How do you revert back to that uh, previous build without uh, screwing things up, shall we say? And there isn't really any way in the UI to just say, hey, I want to make my current build on my, you know, my current code set from this particular check-in. Yeah, so there's currently no UI to do that. If there's a specific commit and you want to revert the change made in that commit, Mm -hmm. you can uh, select it and click the the revert commit. And what that will do is create a new commit that basically makes all the reverse changes of that one commit. But if you're trying to, like, you know, roll all the way back to that point, we don't have that feature in the UI. There's reasons why. Yeah, there's reasons why, right? Like, uh, you know, you potentially lose all the work that passed that. So what we'd really want to do is create a branch from that commit. And it's really easy to do that in the command line. Uh, one thing I will say, kind of a meta level, is anytime you run into little things like this that you're trying to do and it causes you friction, feel free to email support at github.com. And, and you can even CC like me, like just say, hey, Phil told me to email you. And that really helps us get a sense of what is it that people were actually trying to do. Right. Uh, when they ran into this friction, because the more we understand about that, the the better we can uh, plan how we're going to address it. Because sometimes what people don't want, they don't want to revert back to that commit. What they really want to do was see what the code was like at that point or, you know, things like that. Have you ever used uh, git bisect? No, I do not bisect. <laughs> so I, I, I love talking about this because this is one of those things that eventually I want to make a lot easier, especially for .NET developers to do. Mm-hmm. But Git Bisect is one of the most powerful tools for something similar to your situation where, let's say, um, a bug was introduced at some point in the, in the, uh, since the last release. And you know the last release worked, but you know the current release doesn't. And you're like, well, where was this bug introduced? Right, and so a good way to do that is would be to do uh, a binary search, right? Mm-hmm. So you might commit, uh, check out the middle commit in between, and then see is the bug here? Yes or no? And if if it is, then you know that the bug was introduced earlier. So then you pick the middle commit between you know the the last known good and where you currently are, and you keep cutting in half until you find the uh, bug, and it you know. Binary search shouldn't take too long. Sure. Well, Git bisect is a means of doing that in an automated fashion. Nice. With Git. So you, you tell it which, you, you run the command, you tell it which one is a good commit, which one is a bad commit, and then um, it starts 
going through the process of checking out the uh, commit in the middle, and then you tell it, was this commit good or bad? So you run your test, you try it out, whatever, and so on. Uh, what's really cool is you can actually pass it a shell script that it'll run on each commit, and then it could just uh, the shell script should just tell it yes or no. And then you can just automatically go, you know, run that script through the bisect and it'll just go. That's actually what it sounds like. And then it finds the uh, commit that it'll say, oh, in this commit, you know, stuff got broken. That's what web apps are missing is more sound effects. I agree. Yes. Well, yeah, and, and desktop <laughs> apps even. I don't think we have any sound effects in GitHub you, for Windows. You definitely want an off button for that, though. Yeah, yeah. I'm I mean, and there's so many right places now. where you can play sad trombone. It's amazing. Richard, do you remember when we were sitting at in Barcelona, you and me and Greg Hughes, and we're sitting around? And I had just gotten an iPhone, and I hadn't yet turned off the click when you when you press a key, you know. So I'm sitting over there, and I'm checking my mail and stuff, and it's going click, 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 click. And Greg just looks at me, and says, "You know, there's a way to turn that off, don't you?" it's a polite way of saying hey (laughs) shut that thing up yep yeah sound effects so carl are you are you pretty comfortable with the uh git command line at this point or yeah actually um it's very easy i love command line tools actually actually very easy for me to figure it out on the command line but um, yeah, I think I think making a a branch just to check out some code and see what was in this thing again, you know, if you're not uh, doing the bisect thing, is probably a good idea. And then you just delete the branch when you're done with it. Or if you need to steal some code to put in your current um, to put in your current version, you can do that. Yeah. So like yeah. So you would just uh, in GitHub for Windows, you can for each commit, there's a button where you can click and we'll copy the the SHA, the sort of the identifier for that commit mm-hmm. into your clipboard. And then you could run, you know, git, check out, dash B, and then paste the SHA in, and it yep. will check that out. Uh, it'll check out that commit. Yeah, that's exactly what I did. And I don't remember the exact syntax either, but uh, that's exactly how I got around it. Right. Um, have you seen my blog post that I did recently, GitHub flow like a pro with these 13 Git aliases? Neat. No. Okay, so you might want to check these out because so at GitHub we have this concept that we call GitHub Flow, and it's kind of the approach that uh, we recommend a lot of developers that that we do ourselves for doing projects, uh, for doing any kind of code. So for example, if I'm going to do a bug fix or if I'm going to start a new feature, you know, we always do all our work in a new branch. So we'll create a new branch and then we'll start doing our work, and then you know, commits in that branch, and then we'll push that branch up. Uh, to github.com and then create a pull request over there. And so a pull request is just you know a request to take this code and pull it into the master branch of the you know the main repo. And uh, you know usually we recommend people create the pull request early. It's not it's not necessarily like the finished product. It's often the beginning of a discussion about the code. And so people will iterate on the code, discuss it, and eventually someone hits the merge button and merges that code in. Mm. And then you'll just delete your local branch and, and, and start a new branch for the next thing you're doing. Right. And sometimes you, and what's nice is you can have multiple branches going in parallel because you're working on different things and not have them interfere with each other. So what I did was I created a set of aliases, Git aliases, that really help uh, kind of embody that flow for people. And so I wrote a blog post about it, and, and you might find some of them interesting. So, you know, uh, as I mentioned, for checking out a branch, you know, I just, uh, instead of git checkout dash B, I just uh, aliased it to Cobb, C-O-B, okay. kind of a shorthand for that. But I have one um, that, that I call git be done. <laughs> so that's like if you're done with that branch, if it's already been merged on github.com, what it will do is it'll uh, go check out master, pull all the latest, and then delete all your local branches that have already been merged into master. So it's a nice way of cleaning up your, your workspace. So I have a, a 13 aliases that are useful, so it, it can help you uh, level up your Git command line foo. It's interesting that before I really started using it, everybody in their brother said, branches are evil, don't branch. 
But I think if, <laughs> but I think if you um, think of a branch as a read-only thing, you know, I just want to pull this down to see what was going on here, maybe run it. It's not like I'm going to, you know, branch off and make another, you know, another uh, another fork just for the sake of, you know, working in parallel with somebody else. That's a bad idea. Well, so the reason people have told you in the past that branches are bad was because they were so bad in the previous source control systems. In, uh, you know, Visual Source Safe, God forbid if you ever use a branch there. I've, I, I don't think I've ever branched in Source Safe uh, back in the day. In CVS and in Subversion, branches are very expensive. They copy the whole thing. They're connected to the server. But in Git, a branch is literally... Like, if you go and look at the change when you create a new branch, it's literally one line of text in a little file. Right. And what that line of text says is the branch name and uh, the commit that that branch is pointing to. It's basically a pointer to a commit. So you could create 100 branches in basically no time at all. And you haven't really done anything other than you've created these pointers. It's not till you start making commits to those branches and, and things diverge that anything really happens right. with the branch. And so in Git, and also, you know, the important thing about creating a branch is being able to merge it in. And so that's something that Git is really good at and does excellently. Because um, I used to, you know, use Subversion. I was a big Subversion fan. But, man, branching and merging was so painful. And so I was kind of in that camp of try to limit the number of branches you have as much as you can because, you, you know, you want to save yourself some headache. But in Git, it's sort of the way to do it is to you know create branches for everything. Because mm -hmm. what you don't want to do is I you I run into this a lot. Like I'm working on you know feature A and feature B in parallel because sometimes you know I need I need more info on feature A and then a bug comes in and I got to start working on that bug fix. Right. And what I don't want is you know the code of feature A and B and the bug fix all to be mixed in together in my workspace. Yes. Where I'm like trying to comment things out or whatever like i have no idea if like they're not interfering with each other but if you do things in a branch it's like you're creating this nice little isolated chamber for just this code fix it's you know a lot like uh, encapsulation right instead of encapsulating code functionality you're encapsulating your changes sure you see, I'm passionate yeah i understand about that <laughs> yeah well, I, I also like, I mean, I generally speaking, like the way Git handles this because it punishes the brancher. The longer you're out, the harder it's going to be on you. So that you're incented, if branching, to get back to the trunk as soon as possible. Mm -hmm. Yes. Yeah, there is that. Right. As opposed to, to punishing everybody else. <laughs> right, right, right. But the branches are sometimes necessary, although there's some new coding styles and stuff coming out. Like I'm watching teams now that are functioning in trunk all the time, very much an integrate first sort of mindset. So that features are in development, but not visible to the user uh, for a variety of reasons. Lots of them having to do with load testing and things like that. But so it is possible to tackle this from another route. But yeah, I, I appreciate the way you guys deal with branching because it hurts the right people. Yeah. But uh, I, even that, I think it's uh, kind of an orthogonal concern. That, to me, that's more of a like a deployment issue, right? Because like you wouldn't want to um, you wouldn't want to put something in and have it feature flagged if it was buggy because you didn't you know test it enough. Like I would actually branch the code as, as the development process. I'd create a branch and and implement the feature as if it was in trunk and with the feature flag, test it, and then merge it in a trunk, and it could still be feature flagged because you want to be able to you know, deploy it and then load test it on a lab server, things like that, right? Um, yeah, those, those are both compatible kind of orthogonal concerns. We actually do quite a bit of, you know, we do some feature flagging ourselves even with right. GitHub.com, even though we also use branches for all our development. So what's coming up next at GitHub? Anything crazy that you uh, can, uh, you know, ruin your career on, on our show over? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, hmm. Well, I, we recently released GitHub for Windows 2.0. Um, you probably saw that where we changed the UI. But if you use uh, GitHub for Mac, you'll notice that it's also pretty similar. Hmm. So... You know, without like giving away too much, you can see that we're starting to uh, have those applications converge a little more in terms of how they work. Yeah. Um, 
how they work together. But uh, yeah, we're doing a lot of stuff. Uh, you know, we're really just heads down trying to really polish the app for a lot of our customers' general use cases. You know, we've done a pretty good job with, for example, the open source community. Um, but there's a lot of businesses that are struggling with uh, GitHub at times. So we're trying to, you know, make things better for them as well. And uh, yeah, just just a lot of uh, polishing and making things work uh, really smoothly and, so, you know, really focused on solving sort of the biggest problems that customers face when using Git and GitHub. So, Phil, is there any last minute thing you want to plug or talk about before we wrap it up? Yeah. Um, in fact, uh, Richard Campbell and I were both involved in a um, Microsoft Virtual Academy recording that will be coming out soon where we talk about uh, it's a session with uh, multiple instructors. And I, I was one of them. Richard was the host, and we talk a lot about uh, you know open source, the culture, how to do it, the legal aspects. So it's a really good primer for those who are um, kind of curious about open source or or in it but don't really understand a lot of the different aspects of it. Who mm-hmm. want to you know ramp up their learning a little bit about open source. So uh, I haven't seen it yet. Uh, I hope it came out. I hope it comes out well. Um, but uh, yeah, check it out and let me know. All right, we'll provide a link to that on .arocks.com. Listen, everybody, thank you very much for listening. Phil, thank you. Oh, you're welcome. Pleasure as always, and we'll see you next time on .NET Rocks. .NET Rocks is brought to you by Franklin's Net and produced by Plop Studios, a full-service audio, video, and post-production facility located physically in New London, Connecticut, and, of course, in the cloud. Online at pwop.com. Visit our website at dotnetrocks.com for RSS feeds, downloads, mobile apps, comments, and access to the full archives going back to show number one, recorded in September 2002. And make sure you check out our sponsors. They keep us in business. Now go write some code. See you next time. Got a transmitter band.